Good morning. Good morning. It's funny what things pass through your mind during the course of regular events like a Sunday morning. Uh, Ronnie, we sang, Why did my Savior come to earth? Because he loved me so. Uh, and that song was run for me 20 years ago. So of course I'll now run it for you. But 20 years ago, I had a friend who was, uh, had done some mission work in Japan and uh, talked a lot yeah, about the soup that they eat called miso. And uh, he was telling me how great it was. And I said, why is it such a big deal? He said, why did my Savior come to earth then? Because he loved miso. <laughs> and now I can't sing that song without giggling about miso. It's completely rent for me. Welcome. It is now rent for you. Uh, such are memories. This month we've been talking about uh, two concepts, I hope, in conjunction. One is the notion of the mission of the church, and the other is the idea of strengthening and supporting families. And it's been my objective this month to help you see those as connected ideas. They're not separate. It's not we have a, a mission and then we have families. The family is the mission. The mission works through family. We want to make our families a little church. We want to make our church a big family. There's a connection in those concepts. Uh, today will be the, the last of that particular series of lessons. We're going to move on to, to other themes throughout the year. Uh, next week, I'm hoping to talk about the transfiguration of Christ, and then I've got some lessons on the cross of Christ. And then it'll be on to Easter, believe it or not. It's not that far off. Uh, this summer, I'm doing a couple of months on the life of Christ out of Mark probably two months of that. Lots of things to discuss. My hope is, though, that we're not done with the topic of family. That even though we may be talking about other passages and thoughts and themes, that we continue to marry the idea of the mission of the church and the family as inseparable concepts that we want to come up throughout the year. Today, we want to talk about the mission of the church in the world where messies, it turns out, are very uh, families, it turns out, are very messy. Uh, sometimes, when I, when I was doing research on family ministry, sometimes there's this idealized vision of the family that is in the author's mind when he says, here's how to do family ministry. And they imagined uh, a happy husband and a happy wife and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and like this little home. And they say, here's how to reach that family. Uh, that's all well and good, I suppose. I've never met that family, uh, but I suppose they're out there somewhere. More realistic, we have to think about the fact that the church, the messy church, <laughs> is engaging with messy families. And that is the world as we find it. Right? We don't get any say in that. That is reality. It's fact. And it's not even a new fact. Uh, ask yourself this question. When Jesus entered the world and begins his ministry, what did he find there? Did he find an idealized state where there were all these good Jewish folks sitting around reading Torah, listening to, and waiting for the Messiah, and when he came, he said, here I am, and everyone just immediately said, ah, yes, of course, uh, that's what we've been waiting for, and they all followed him and served him, and when he made his teaching known, they all accepted it. I mean, of course, you're laughing and saying, that's not at all how it happened. 
just last week we were looking at John at the first chapter and seeing examples where some people saw Jesus and said, yeah, let's follow him. And some people said, no, I don't think so. Nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. And, and that's only the tip of the iceberg, that Jesus met opposition and obstacles and challenges in every facet of his ministry. He did not come to a perfect, idealized world and just say, now here's the next thing we have to do. He came to the world as it existed in his time and place and met its challenges head on. Uh, let me give you one example of that, maybe a little bit of an over-the-top example, but it works for today's point. This comes from Mark chapter 1, be today's text. Mark chapter 1, 21 to 22. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So far, so good. Uh, if we were to, to modernize this to a Christian setting, we'd say Jesus went to church, right? So it's Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, just like today on a Sunday, you went to a church. You know, conceptually, very similar. And what did he find there? He found people reading scriptures, right? That's what you do at a synagogue. You get together on a Sabbath day and you read some scriptures. And so he went there and he read some scriptures and he did some teaching and, and everything was perfect, right? That's where the story ends. That's the end of Mark's gospel. And they all heard him and everyone lived happily ever after. Uh, no, there's a demon. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. So it, the closest you're going to get to an idealized setting, Jesus on the Sabbath in the synagogue, reading scripture, teaching, and people saying, wow, that's great. And a demon, an actual demon shows up, a, more literally a person possessed of an unclean spirit, shows up and starts screaming. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been at a church service when someone starts randomly screaming. Um, it's happened once or twice to me. Uh, it puts a particular spin on the service for the day. They're memorable. Um, and that's what Jesus encounters. Okay? Have, you ever, have you ever tried? I, I know you're not ministers and preachers per se. Have you ever tried to, to preach or to give, deliver a, a speech or a teaching while someone is screaming, uh, all the teachers in the room said like every day, but, but it's a little bit difficult, right? It's not ideal. It's not ideal. You, you want your audience quietly and attentively listening, and instead there's someone with a demon They're screaming at you. Okay. A problem. A problem you might even like to help with. Not the idealized state. My point is simply this. Jesus did not encounter a tidy world where everyone was sitting in nice rows waiting for him to tell them how to live, he encountered very real challenges in the world. And that's great news for us because so do we. If Jesus had encountered a tidy, like nice, pleasant world and everything worked out perfectly and smoothly, we'd be in a rotten mess because we wouldn't know how to follow him. Instead, what we see is Jesus becomes our role model. Likewise, today, when we take the gospel to families, we will encounter a messy world. And that's fine. Jesus does not throw his hands up and leave the synagogue and say, I didn't know there'd be a demon here today. I'm out of here. No, he stays and he addresses the situation as he finds it. And likewise, the church, when we go to families, you may have in your head an idealized vision of the family and therefore an idealized vision of what family ministry might mean. But in reality, because the family isn't ever ideal, 
Family ministry is never ideal. It doesn't work that way. No white picket fences. Just not the way the world works. And it's not how God works in the world. God has always worked in and through messy families and the messy world as he has found it. He created the world as he wanted it. It stayed that way for like five minutes. And since that time, he has been dealing with us as we are. And the Bible is simply full of stories about God working through people who are flawed and imperfect, and even more so, in flawed and imperfect situations. You say, I know, but modern world, it's a really messy place. Have you seen the news? Fact is, there is no scenario today, this is my my proposition for you today, there's no scenario today that we're going to encounter that doesn't find some sort of parallel in Scripture and in the stories that are provided there. Can I, can I give you a rundown of suggestions? I went uh, deep diving into the uh, most recent census data. I was curious, what's the state of the American family? And I was curious how it matched up with what I read in my Bible. And I, and I wasn't um, disappointed by what I found. 11% uh, family groups in the United States include a single parent. 11%, one out of 10 include a single parent, which means in practice, you add up the children under 18, 28.3% of children under the age of 18 today are being raised by a single parent, okay? And so you got some choices there. You can do some hand wringing and say, oh, I just don't know how we're gonna reach that and how we're gonna do with that and what we're gonna do. Or you can remember, in the Bible, that's quite a common occurrence. Uh, Hagar has a son named Ishmael. If you know the story of how Ishmael comes to be, it is a mess. There is, there is a husband and wife. Neither are the parent uh, that should be to Ishmael. Hagar is the handmaiden. And at one point in Genesis 16, they're on the run for their life, thinking they're going to die. Had it not been the intervention of God, they would have been destitute and alone. And instead, God intervenes in a single family setting and acts and brings about a blessing. Doesn't reverse it, doesn't even change it. Sends them back to the tent where all the mess had happened, but blesses it and finds a way to bring good out of it. The widow of Zarephath is in 1 Kings chapter 17 who encounters a prophet of God and becomes a blessing to him. This time it was the prophet who was on the run. And it's a widow and her son who bless him and provide for him and take him in and then later on receive a blessing of their own. Great story. You should read it. How about Moses? Moses, who is uh, certainly an important figure. Did God work in the life of Moses? Yeah, I would say so. We have no law of Moses without him. And yet, how did Moses, how did his family life look? He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and raised kind of by a mother in a complicated situation where no one was supposed to know what was going on, right? All the while, his own people were being persecuted. I mean, what a mess. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? What good thing could come out of that? What prophet of God ever came out of Pharaoh's household? The adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter? Moses, (laughs) quite literally. A really important one did. God worked in and through that scenario, as he often does. Uh, 
coming back to modern times, one in five couples, if you ask the couple, does one of you have a child by another partner? One in five persons and couples have children by multiple partners in American society today. As a result of that, one in six kids live in what we call a blended home, where they're living with a step-parent, a step-brother, a step-somebody, or a half-somebody, term it how you like, a blended home of someone. One in six kids are living in that scenario. Again, we can wring our hands and say, what are we going to do? Or remember, that's most of the stories in your Old Testament. Jacob, if you're looking for the model family, don't ask Jacob. He has no idea what it looks like. (laughs) Jacob has 12 children and one daughter by four women. And to be clear, Genesis is not recommending that. It's a really messy story. We call it messy for a reason. It's a difficult story. Nobody in that family likes each other. It's really tough. Okay? It's messy. It's troubling. And yet God, as Joseph, one of the children, says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God brings about a great blessing for a whole nation of people out of a family that was an absolute mess. And don't get me started on David. David, the man after God's own heart, his heart may be after God, his family was not. His family is a disaster. 2 Samuel chapter 3 just briefly lists some of his wives and concubines and so forth. And the result is nonstop drama. You have uh, one son trying to usurp the throne, one son rapes a sister, one son murders the son who raped the sister, and on and on the story goes, even after David's dead. The first thing that Solomon does when he takes the throne is to have executed one of his brothers who was also trying to take the throne. Right? It, it's, it's a very messy family. And yet that David thing kind of worked out. And in fact, the family of David became a blessing to a nation and to the world. God worked in and through it. Today, you may be a, a person who has entered a phase of life where you thought you were done with the family business as such, or at least that part of it, the child raising, and maybe your kids have come back around. You're not alone. Three to four percent of all kids under the age of 18 are being raised by a grandparent. And I thought that was actually low. I was surprised. I thought that number would be much higher. But the Census Bureau says three to four percent of kids under 18 are being raised by a grandparent. Uh, Not entirely shocking. The Bible, again, has stories where people well up in years are called upon to raise children in a unique situation, and God works in and through it. Great story in 2 Kings chapter 11 you ought to read. Uh, I actually went back and reread it because I hadn't read it in a while. And it's the story of Jehoiada and his wife and Joash. Joash, I, I think technically Jehoiada is an uncle, not a grandparent, but he is an older relative of Joash. And while the powers that be in Israel are trying to execute the potential threats to the throne, like Joash, the rightful prince, uh, Jehoiada takes Joash and hides him in the temple and raises him, he and his wife raise him in secret, in the temple itself. Imagine, you know, you got a job in the temple and things to do. And don't, you know, anytime you have a job to do and you add a small child, it always makes the job easier, right? He's trying to run the temple while keeping a small 
child quietly tucked away in one of the closets and raise him to be the future king. And years later, when the moment's right, they bring the child out. The revolution begins and he takes the throne. And it was an older relative and a whole lot of secrets that made that. Is that an ideal situation? I'm betting Joash would say, no, not exactly the home I imagined. But it worked out. Like God worked in and through that particular situation. While three to four percent of kids are raised by grandparents, if you look at um, adults 55 and older, one in six are still childless at that stage in life. And that number has been increasing in recent decades. People 55 and older, one in six are childless and have reached a stage in life uh, where it can become very lonely, especially if there are no kids involved. Again, not unusual. In the Bible, while both of the examples I'll give you now did eventually have children, they lived the vast majority of their life without any. And when they finally did have children, I suspect regretted it because they were well up in years and not thinking at that particular moment that that was when they wanted kids. But Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 16, Zacharias and Elizabeth, well up in years and past the age when people are having children, having lived a full and complete life without children than have them. The story of a lifetime without children is not unusual in Scripture. In fact, it's fairly commonplace. Uh, Not all of our family households include more than one person. According to the Census Bureau, 28% of households in the U.S. have just one person living in them. And 46%, 46 46.4, for those of you keeping score, 46.4% of all U.S. adults are single, which is the highest number at any time in American history. Okay? And that's a tough one to talk about. It is. Because on the one hand, we don't want to say, well, you're single, there must be something wrong with you. That, that's not a verdict on the person by any stretch. It's a circumstance that is increasingly prevalent. So on the one hand, we want to say, what God himself says. Remember what God said when he created Adam. He creates Adam and he says, that is very good. And then the very next thing he says about Adam is, not good that Adam should be alone. He's not saying there's something wrong with Adam or even that it's Adam's fault or anything of the sort. But he is saying is, isolation and loneliness is not the ideal human condition. And so God acts to change that. And as a church, we end up trying to say the same thing. We're trying to say we want to support those who find themselves in a single state. We want you to be loved and cherished here in all the ways that we can. At the same time, we don't want to say that isolation and loneliness are good conditions, the opposite of that. And so it becomes a hard thing for us to talk about well. I don't do it well, just candidly. Fact is, though, almost half of U.S. adults are single. So churches are going to have to get better at talking about that and saying, how do we talk to that kind of family? Because apparently half are that. Biblically, we are overwhelmed with examples of how to talk about that. Folks, God does some of his best work in single people. The same God who said, it's not good that man should be alone, has spent a lot of time working through single people. Can you make a list? As far as we know, Miriam never married. 
and yet becomes an enormous figure in the life of Moses and in the leadership of the Old Testament along with Aaron and Moses. Jeremiah the prophet was commanded not to marry. Specifically, do not take a wife. And does, again, remarkable work as a prophet of God. Uh, Daniel and Nehemiah, again, no wife ever married. And if you read some of the commentaries, they'll even speculate, may have been eunuchs. They were court officials in a foreign government at a time when figures in that position were often eunuchs. So, you know, you kind of connect the dots. Quite possibly lived their entire lives as single persons and not by choice. John the Baptist, no wife is ever mentioned. Paul specifically mentions that he is currently single. We don't know if he had always been that way. He might have been a widower. He might have been divorced. We don't know. But at the time he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he said he was single. And even says to the Corinthians, given what you're going through, it might be a good idea for some of you to be single. And then, in case we missed all the examples, there was this one fellow that was kind of important who's the role model for the entire human race. And so far as we know, Jesus of Nazareth was single. My point being, while the same God says, no, it's not good that man should be alone, he does some of his best work in single people. And as churches, if we are not thinking about how best to reach that person, to include that person, to put to work that person, then we're missing out not just on society as we found it, but on much of what the Bible has taught us about the human condition. Uh, and that doesn't even begin to talk about our widows. Uh, among people 75 and older, 54% of women are widows and 20% of men are widows. And if you look at a church, those numbers are most, much higher by proportion. Okay. Every church I've ever been in. The very first story about work to be done in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 6, and it talks about how the church took care of and integrated widows in the life of the church. And that's not new. The Old Testament has an entire book about a pair of widows named after one of the widows, Naomi and Ruth, are a huge part of the story of Israel. And the story begins with them losing their husbands. Anna the prophetess was a widow in Luke chapter 2 and becomes one of the first to announce Jesus Christ entering the world. And where did she find her place of work? Here's a widow woman, a person who could have easily been on the fringes of society. She's in the temple, it says, day by day, worshiping and waiting for the consolation of God. She finds her place in the people of God at the temple. All that to say, there's no end of examples, and I just had to decide at some point where to stop and where to stop getting statistics. I don't have to give you in this church statistics about fostering adoption and guardianship, because so many of you here are doing exactly that. But again, the Bible is full of examples. Eli raises up Samuel, who is of no relation to him whatsoever. And yet Samuel, the last of the judges, and the beginning of the dynasty who anoints Saul and later David, an incredibly important figure in the history of Israel. And then the strangest relationship of all is this man Joseph, who raises our Lord, a child conceived in his bride by the Holy Spirit. And I can't even imagine the sort of relationship they had. And yet it gave way to our Lord. God has taken the world as he has found it and worked great wonders in it. In fact, I'll even go this far. Can you name for me a normal family in the Bible? 
Can you name for me in the Bible, husband, wife, 2.5 kids, picket fence, no drama? I'm not sure that story exists in the Bible. In every occasion, there is some wrinkle to the story where it's never the ideal, and yet it never prevents God from working wonders in that circumstance. Likewise, the church and our ministry, every family here is less than the ideal. Is that news to anybody, by the way? Funny thing is, this is the funny thing, every family here knows they aren't the ideal, but looks around the room and thinks, boy, those other families really have it together. It's a lie. None of them do. And you read your Bible, and it's not a surprise. There's no such thing as this normal family. There are simply the families that we have. And so we go to those families and we reach those families. We, we take the world as we find it. And there is a, sometimes a common reaction. And I actually want to go back to the story in Mark for just a moment. Because there's something interesting when Jesus encounters the demon. Um, I know. Some of you are thinking it's a stretch. Some of you are thinking it's exactly right that I'm comparing family life to demon possession. But just, just go with me a minute. There's something here. Okay. He encounters the demon. And what does the demon say to Jesus? What have, you have, or what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Angry demon. Not even a happy demon. He sees Jesus and begins, remember now, this is the demon speaking. Now there is a human person possessed of an unclean spirit who's kind of along for the ride. But it's the demon giving voice to this thought. You're here to destroy us, aren't you? Us. Catch that? You're here to destroy us. I love Lord of the Rings, and I love any of the scenes that involve Gollum, where he's talking to himself, but it's like it's two people. And that's kind of how this feels to me. There, there's this unclean spirit, and there's some person there along for the ride, and the demon says, he's here to destroy us. I think that is how some families respond to the church. We have our mess, and we know it well, and the mess says to us, those church people don't like people like us. Those church people don't have any room for families like ours. We don't belong there. They've come to destroy us. Who's us? The messy world assumes Jesus is here to condemn and to judge and to exclude. And probably, all, all cards on the table, there have been Christians who have put a face to that and made it true. And shame on us for having done it. But that's not the message of Jesus. Jesus rebuked him, not them. The demon says, he's here to destroy us. Jesus says to him, be silent and get out. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Jesus wasn't there to hurt the person. Jesus knew that that person was in bondage to circumstances beyond their control. 
He was there to rebuke evil. He was there to rebuke sickness. He was there to heal every wound that makes us less than we should be and to liberate us from every power that keeps us from being what he wants us to be. But there's this voice in our head. I don't think it's a demon, but there's a voice in our head that says, those Christians don't like people like you. Funny thing is, Jesus is here for that voice. (laughs) His enemy is exactly that voice in our head that says you don't belong here with this group of people. But he's here for you to liberate and to heal that mess. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. And when it happens, the text says they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. When Jesus heals the hurting, overpowers the powerful, liberates the weak, and restores a human life to what it should be, people saw that and said, now that is power. And what I'm here to tell you, a church that accepts the reality of the mess in the world, but chooses rather than to exclude it, to heal it, to liberate it, and to offer it the life-changing, family-restoring gospel of Jesus Christ, There is a power there that is unequaled, unrivaled, and unmistakable. There is no greater power than the power that can save a human life. A family that can take, a power that can take a family on the rocks and put it on solid ground. That's power. And you know it's power because you've been trying to do it to your family all along and failed. There is a power that can do it. And that's power. I've been asked a few times in the last couple of months, we got this ambitious goal of connecting with families and doing more with families. And here's the question I keep getting asked. Are we trying to serve the families we have or attract new families? And my answer has consistently been yes. A church that strengthens its families is a testament to the world of what is going on with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we help and heal those that are already here, they become a witness to the community of what the gospel does. And it becomes a light to the world. God's work and word spread and message families, and it will spread like fire. Hear the description of Acts chapter 2, and it's the same kind of language. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God was saving souls and lives and families. In their home, he's working. And yet the word of changed homes, of changed families, spreads. And the whole community says, that's something. And they had favor with all the people. Today, our mission and our method are one. Our goal and the means to attaining that goal is one. The mission of the church and the family go together. We want to make this family, your family, a little church in order to make this church a big family. And when we start to see the gospel changing families one at a time, 
There is no miracle or work you can imagine more significant and awe-inspiring than the gospel at work in a home. If your family is exactly one of those and you want to submit more fully your life, your ambitions, your goals, everything to the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to make it as simple as possible. We want to meet with you one-on-one. -one. We want to pray for you. We want to talk to your family. We want to give you any and every resource we possibly can. If you want to lead by putting on Christ in baptism and be a leader in your own home, responding to the gospel, we want to help you with that. And we want to do it in any circumstance and setting you find comfortable. We live in an anxious world, and for many of you, the idea of walking to the front of a crowded room is terrifying. Send a text. You're going to send 300 of them today. Make one count. Tell us, I'm one of those people who wants the prayers and the ministry of the church to reach my home. I want it to reach me. Let us know how we can start helping and see what God has done. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we pray that you would be alive and well in our families, whatever they look like, however they've come to exist, as you always have. All the families of heaven and earth come from you. You are their God. You are our Father. Heal our broken relationships. Heal our hurting families. And let each family know that they are loved and cared for here among your people. Do not allow us to idealize and idolize some myth of a perfect family. But let us see you at work in every family and believe in what only your grace can do. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.